I'm speaking with Elaine Glusak. Elaine is a freelance travel writer based in Chicago. She has won numerous awards for her work, including the gold medal as Travel Journalist of the Year in 2019 from the Society of American Travel Writers and the silver medal as Travel Journalist of the Year in 2018. Her work has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, where she writes the Frugal Traveler column. So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your background. Did you grow up in Chicago? I did not. I'm a transplant. I grew up in the city of Detroit. Detroit, Detroit, as we like to say in Michigan, which means you're not from the suburbs. And when I got out of college, I wanted to live somewhere that wasn't auto-centric as Detroit is. They're really, of course, there's bus service and stuff, but it's really, you really do need a car to live there. And I wanted to live in a city that didn't require me to have a car. And so I lived in New York City for a while. I did a fellowship there and got to live there for about six months and decided that I would give Chicago a try. Thought it might be an easier place, but have a lot of the things that I loved about New York. And that was, gosh, more than 20 years ago. So I think I made the right choice. What do you enjoy about living in Chicago? Oh, so much. I just extol it as this amazing combination of culture and nature. The lake is just such an amazing asset. I love going down there. I love biking on the lakefront, birding. You get so much nature in this city that it's really spectacular. And I love the fact that the city was really planned around parks. But there's also just this amazing breadth of culture here. I really love the theater scene. Of course, it's all been impacted by the pandemic. But before the pandemic, I mean, there's more than 200 storefront theaters, and that's not even including like the big cats like Steppenwolf and Goodman. So there's just so much to see, and there's so much creativity around the city. And the same can be said for the music scene and art. The restaurants are incredible. I always feel like I can never keep up. And so that's a fun challenge. There's just a tremendous amount to do, and it just sort of fills everything that I'm looking for in a city. And then, of course, you don't have to have a car, which is great. I do have a car. And when I moved here, I didn't, but I got rid of it before the pandemic, which was maybe bad timing because everyone was kind of like using their car as a personal bubble. But I realized I really didn't need it here. I was able to use my bike or my feet or public transit to get everywhere I need to go. I really like that aspect of Chicago as well. And when you talked about the theater scene, I really feel like Chicago is a place that people who are in theater and in the arts really are in it because they want to be in it rather than because it's a place where you're trying to sort of make it big. Oh, absolutely. And so for that reason, I think you see people taking a lot of chances and doing really unusual things. And I just love being in those small theaters of like less, you know, 20 people, 20, 30, 50 people and seeing people try new works and seeing new faces. And these aren't people, like you said, necessarily like auditioning for a pilot or something. They're really just putting their souls out to bear for you and 20 other audience members for the love of the work. So there's just this inherently creative scene that I love to be in the audience and experience. Are there any drawbacks that you find to living in Chicago? It's flat <laughs> and I love to hike and I wish there was like a little bit better hiking, but you know, you can't have everything. I don't know. I feel like for me and as a traveler, the airport O'Hare especially is such a great asset because you really can get to a lot of places direct, especially. I know people love to complain about O'Hare, but for me, it's really useful. I don't have a lot of complaints. I mean, the public school system, I wish they would get it together. <laughs> That's all I can say. But my kid is out of public school now and on to college. So we're past that. 
As someone who travels a lot, are you torn between wanting to spend more time at home versus traveling? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's true. Like, I really love my home. I really love being here. And I love the things that I do at home. But I also love to travel. I always feel a little bit torn when I'm not traveling. I want to be traveling. <laughs> and sometimes when I'm traveling, I want to be home. But I just think that's sort of the nature of, of traveling for work, too. I'd like to put it this way. Like, I feel like I try to live in the moment wherever I am. I try to avoid those feelings of what am I missing and really just be present when I'm traveling, be there. When I'm there, I'm there. I'm not really calling home. And the same thing when I'm here, I try to be really present for everyone and everything in my life and not wishing I were elsewhere or acting on those urges. I'm lucky enough to have a really nice home. I have a extensive garden. We actually call it an urban farm in our family. And we keep chickens and we have a beehive. So there's lots of things sort of to do <laughs> always when I'm home. So that's really great. It's nice to have a great place to come back to and lots of really stimulating things to do when I'm here. How did your interest in travel first develop? Oh, it's really very old. I would say I'm from a family of travelers. My parents were huge travelers. They didn't have any money, for example. They got married in like my aunt's basement, but then they saved all their money and spent two months driving around the East Coast and the Finger Lakes. And I always loved their, I loved their priorities. They were like, yeah, we don't need the big showy wedding, but we really want to have the honeymoon. <laughs> and so we traveled a lot as a family, a lot of road trips, long road trips. We drove all the way to Nova Scotia. We drove down to Hilton Head once. We would drive across Canada regularly. And that was always just such great bonding time for our family. Of course, it was just so stimulating to be traveling. And I think that rubbed off on me. I started traveling, I guess, really with my family. And then once I was in college, I started doing my own things with friends and it just took off. I've always been um, very interested in travel and any opportunity I could find, I would act on that. If I met someone in grad school who said, hey, I'm from Turkey, you should come visit me. I'd be like, yep, I'll be there. Never turned down an offer. When did you first start to think that you could make that into a career? I decided that I wanted to be a writer and I sort of always in the back of my mind thought eventually I'd like to write travel, but I really needed to learn how to write and report. So I just started writing. And part of wanting to write was also just wanting to explore my own curiosity and to run my own business, to not be bound to a boss or a workplace. I sort of had this natural entrepreneurial spirit. When I first moved to Chicago, I, this is so long ago that the Cubs did not charge extra for bleacher seats on the weekends in the summer. And so I figured out this was kind of like a market I could make. So I used to stand outside Wrigley Field in February when it was freezing, get the maximum number of games that I could get, and then scalp those tickets. And I bought my first computer with it. So I had this natural entrepreneurial streak. I really wanted to do my own thing. Writing was a great way to just sort of be self-directed. Writing gave me a lot of it gives you a lot of entree to talk to people, just as you're doing with your podcast. It opens doors to speaking to interesting people. And I love that as just a way to explore the world and what was happening. So I started to write all kinds of general things. I mean, honestly, my first regular gig was with this tiny Italian newspaper based in Chicago called Fra Noi, means between us. I had studied abroad in college in Italy, so I spoke 
I still spoke pretty decent Italian at that time. It's pretty rusty now, but it wasn't writing in Italian, but it was writing for the Italian American community here in Chicago, which was a blast and got me all over the city. And I just really fell in love with the whole reporting part of it. I think I really enjoyed talking to people, listening to what they were doing or their points of view. I got to talk to people that I just wouldn't run across in my daily life. So that was very rewarding. So lots of interim jobs or lots of gigs, I should say. So I've always been freelance writing about everything from food. Um, I did fashion for a long time, fitness, health. And I sort of worked myself into a position where I had enough work and enough offers that I was able to sort of self-direct and really target travel publications based on my own interests. And I had spent enough time writing and sort of getting up to speed and learning how to report that I was ready really for travel. And I say ready because travel writing is very popular. So it's very competitive. So I wanted to, I needed to be good at it, to even break through, to break in. So that was sort of my path. It was really just self-made and very organic. What are some of the challenges of working as a freelancer in that space? Well, it's hard. I mean, it just takes a lot of devotion and you really have to be very Teflon about rejection because you're going to get it every day. (laughs) And you have to really just keep your eyes on your goals. Rejection is just a part of journalism in general. So you need to be able to withstand that and criticism, of course, you know, you're always going to go through edits and, but you, you have to look at it as a learning opportunity. So I think you need to have that innate drive, just finding markets and being heard. It takes a lot of backend work before you even try to approach a publication and try to sell an idea. So the challenges are just putting in the time, understanding the markets and being sharp enough to have a good idea and understanding of the travel world that whatever you're going to say is going to be relevant or new to your editor. And no one's paying you for all this preparation that you're doing. So you have to really love it. I always tell people, you just sort of have to be compelled, really. That's how I feel about it. I I can't see myself doing anything else. <laughs> and if you feel that way, then it's easier to get up in the morning and figure out something new or find a new publication, find a new editor, find a new idea. Have you found over time too, that as you've built connections, that that's made it a lot easier? Oh yeah, definitely. I have been it for so long. Like, you know, I've started out with some editors that I work with 20 years ago and I've worked with them through all the different publications that they went to. So you build connections and it becomes a web. You start to know lots of people and then they go to other places and they introduce you to their coworkers. So yes, it becomes a lot easier over time. When you're writing about travel for a living, how do you still get the experience of being able to enjoy those trips and balance the work against the pleasure aspect of travel? I do try to draw a distinction between when I'm traveling for work and when I'm traveling for myself. But my husband will tell you, I'm like the last person. I always think, oh, I'm just going to go to Mexico and like sit under a palapa and, you know, read. And my husband's like, yeah, that's going to last for five hours. You're going to be like wandering around and finding out what's going on. What are the locals doing? Where are they eating? You know, he's like, you'll never make it as a true vacationer. So I guess there's sort of always that reporting instinct going on in the back of my mind when I'm traveling for myself. And of course, my family's gotten used to that. They also like to explore. So that's really fun. A lot of times when I'm traveling for work, they might This is pre-pandemic, I should also say, because things have changed. But we used to do, like, I would be sent to a city for like three days and have to really figure things out. That's a very short amount of time to do that kind of work. 
So you need to do a lot of preparation beforehand and kind of know where you want to go, but leave room for some spontaneity and flexibility, but really concentrate and focus your time. I wouldn't indulge myself other than maybe getting a morning workout in or something. But at the same time, it's very pleasurable work. I did a story right before the pandemic for the New York Times on like how to cheap out in Las Vegas, basically. And so I'm the person that rode the bus from the airport and all around town. So what is that like? And I went to all the funky neighborhoods around town that had a lot of really interesting food. Like there's a great Chinatown there. And a lot of it was super affordable. I went to free attractions. And of course, there's so much that's free and entertaining in Las Vegas. But this is sort of a 6 a.m. to midnight kind of a gig for like three days. So you don't really have that sort of time to yourself, but the work itself is really pleasurable and fun to find things along the way, like the little empanada shops or the fact that you can go watch them feed the flamingos at the Flamingo Hotel, actually. So those are really fun things. What I try to do a couple times a year is to take a big trip where part of it might be work and then part of it is personal. So my family and I had a chance to go to Iceland actually in October. And while we were there for 10 days, I would say about four or five of those, I was reporting a story, but the rest were just for us. And I think we still bring that same sense of like exploration and curiosity to the non-reporting part, but it's nice to have a little extra time before or after a reporting trip to actually just sort of say, oh, I don't have to do everything in this town today. Is the budget travel aspect that you write about in the Frugal Traveler column for the New York Times something that you're particularly passionate about? Yeah, I am. I have this thesis that luxury travel is really nice and it's indulgent, but it really removes you from the culture and what's real in a destination. If you're high up in some penthouse, you have no idea what's going on down there. You can explore it, but I've always felt like the closer you are to the ground, the better. And by that, I mean land travel, public transportation, meeting local people, all of those things I think are good for you, good for the destination. You're ensuring that by traveling frugally, which often means visiting communities that aren't necessarily part of like the tourist circuit, you're probably leaving your money behind with mom and pop restaurants and shops and independent guides, things like that, that I think really make travel a rich experience and sustains communities as well as the environment. So I think inherently Frugal Traveler considers people and places more than luxury travel does. And I don't want to harp on luxury travel. You know, that's great. But most people can't afford to travel with a huge purse. When I write my column, I think I'm writing for people like me. And I think people like me are most people. It's the 99%. And I would say, I even know some rich people who like to save money. So we also know that we're addressing those people. They might not like the Airbnb that I would choose, but they might find some value in some of the things that I recommend and find on my travels because everybody wants to have sort of that local experience. And often that doesn't cost a lot of money. What are one or two experiences you've had as a budget traveler that have been particularly memorable for you? Oh my gosh. This one is kind of like the kindness of strangers thing. A lot of times I travel alone because I only have the budget to take one person, right? Me. So that forces me to really talk to other people. And I was in the British Virgin Islands. This is right before the pandemic, January of 2020. And I was doing a story where I was mimicking what 
yachtsmen do down there, which is they charter ships. They rent sailboats and sail around the islands and sort of connect the dots. And there is a ferry system also in the British Virgin Islands. So you can kind of like shadow them, but you're taking the ferry. So you're traveling like how the islanders travel. So I did a sort of a DIY cruise, if you will. So I was taking the ferries between various islands in the British Virgin Islands. And I got to Anagata, which is a really beautiful sort of coral island and very different than the other BVIs. And I rented a moped and I was going around the island and it was on and off sort of like raining and and not raining. (laughs) And I was like ducking into like restaurants or under shelters whenever it rained. And then it would like be full sunlight and I'd be back onto the beach, that kind of thing. But it was a really fun day of going around the island. And I stopped for lunch at this really lovely resort and I ordered a fish sandwich and I was eating it. And I saw these two women at the bar and my table was right next to the bar and I heard them talking. So I I just sort of said, well, where do you guys recommend I go next or something like that? And turned out they were from Nebraska, but they were huge Anagata fans and they had been here many, many times. And they started telling me all these wonderful places to go. And then they, then they sort of like whispered to each other. And then they turned back to me and they said, today, this afternoon, we're going to go take a boat and go look at the Conk Islands. And the Conk Islands are these man-made islands. They're really mounds made of Conk shells from fishermen dating back centuries that have deposited them after fishing for the conch. And then you take the conch meat out and then you throw the conch shell in the water and it's created these islands off the island of Anagata. And they had chartered a small motorboat to take them there to look at those and then to go snorkeling. And they said, do you want to join me? And I think I had taken one bite of my sandwich at this point and I was like, Yes. (laughs) So like we like literally got my sandwich in a piece of tinfoil and I hopped in their rental car and we had the most wonderful afternoon. They were so generous to take me on their little cruise and I got to see some things that I would never have seen. Our captain like dove down and found a lobster. And so I have like this very memorable picture of me holding a lobster. I don't know if that would have happened (laughs) in any other way than that way in which I was traveling which was really special. And I've kept in touch with those women and they're extraordinary people and extraordinarily generous. And it really made, it made my trip. It was so fun. What are some of your favorite destinations? I really like the adventure and outdoors. I've been lucky enough to go to Greenland and Patagonia, sort of like the ends of the earth. Those are the farthest ends that I've gotten to. And I really love hiking. Hiking in Patagonia is really special. It's really wild and very, very beautiful and very windy. I actually was hiking and the wind will knock you down. It's crazy. And then in Greenland, it's just an extraordinary place. The icebergs are the size of castles and it's really beautiful. And you must travel by ship because there's very few roads in Greenland, except for around sort of the capital. So you go by ship and you go in the summer when it's late, light. And so one night we found ourselves like watching whales at two in the morning. We were like, oh my God, we have to go to bed. (laughs) This is late. I spent a lot of time recently in Alaska. I love Alaska. In the pandemic, I was there a couple of times. It's also really beautiful and just incredible, vast outdoors and such rich wildlife. Um, You know, it's interesting. There's more biodiversity at at the equator, of course, but you get bigger animals and a lot more of them the farther away you get from the equator. And so Alaska is just amazing for seeing things like bears. But I don't know, I'm always sort of in love with the last place I went. Iceland was really special. 
those who are traveling during the pandemic, a lot of them chose Iceland because they had really high vaccination rate and they had strong rules about who could come in. You had to be vaccinated and you had to have a negative test. And it's just the most incredible place if you're into geology at all, where the rift between two plates there, two continental plates, just reveals itself everywhere in, of course, volcanoes. And there was one that was active while we were there, which is really cool. And mud pots and there's just incredible waterfalls. And I'm a swimmer. And so in every little town, there's sort of a public pool. And a lot of times they have these naturally heated pools at them. They all have those, but then they'll also have like heated swimming pools. So that was really, really fun to sort of pool hop across Iceland. But I mean, I also love Japan. Like I want to broaden this to say that I've also really enjoyed other places. Japan is an incredible cultural experience. The food there is probably my favorite foodie destination. There's just such variety there. It's really, really great. And also, I will say the street food there is affordable. People think Japan is so, so expensive. I mean, getting there, it costs a bit, but we found plenty of ways to save money. And just the Japanese breakfast alone that's included in a lot of the hotels that can carry you throughout the day. It's so generous and it's so savory. It's like you're having sort of tofu and broth and noodles and it's just really fantastic choices and really helpful. You mentioned the pandemic. How has that impacted your career? Well, the pandemic, of course, wreaked havoc on the travel industry and the travel industry is was 10% of global GDP. I mean, it's huge. So we really found that travel became a news beat. So a lot of our stories were ending up in the news section or the business section. There was just so much to write about. And it was a different kind of reporting. Obviously, we weren't traveling to destinations and extolling them and saying you should go there. We were talking about how the airlines were suffering. And if you wanted to travel, what was it like in the air? How could you travel abroad? Given the border restrictions, we wrote a lot about restrictions. And then we wrote about domestic travel and how people were doing it here and camping or road tripping in RVs. So there was a lot and there still is a lot to write about this time of upheaval. And it's still obviously not over. So there's still a lot of that sort of reporting because the pandemic has really scrambled everything. I just reported a story on the death of the off-season, how the pandemic has killed the off-season because people have been traveling all around the year. So the rates in a lot of resort destinations are super high. You used to be able to go to national parks like Joshua Tree in the off-season and have it to yourself, for example. And that's just not the case anymore. There's a lot of, a lot of nomadism going on or work from anywhere has really impacted what you'll find in terms of availability. So a lot of these sort of like social trends also intersect with travel as people proved that they really wanted to get out during the pandemic and they were bound and determined to find ways. So we were reporting about that too. I mean, the pandemic has been terrible, but I have been busy throughout and I have to say it's been very engaging. In closing, what are some of the travel destinations that you're excited about in 2022? So I guess I'm like everyone else, like I saved, I haven't really, really spent a lot of money in the last two years. So I super saved. And I'm going to the Galapagos, which I'm really excited about in May. I have always wanted to go there. And like a lot of other people that we've been writing about, I'm just feeling like the itch to really do something big that's been on my list for a while. I think a lot of people feel this way because they really haven't been able to do the kind of travel that they want to do. So that's on my list. I have sort of like a very active list. I like to really enjoy winter. I'm a big winter fan. I love snow and the magical transformation of the landscape in winter is just really exciting to me. So I plan to spend the next few months traveling around the Midwest to do some skiing and skating. I'm getting to um, Colorado now to go skiing. And then later in the year, 
we'll see. Hopefully travel will be more open and we'll be able to go more places easier than now. And I have quite a long list of things that I want to do out there. I want to do a foodie trip in Pamplona, Spain. I know that I'll be going to Nashville to do a story on songwriting. I have a few other things that are in the works domestically that are already assigned and we're just waiting for the right time to do them when it's safe. So I do think, I do hope that'll be a great year for travel once we get past Omicron and then who knows, hopefully we'll have a little lull, but who knows, we don't really know what's going to happen with another variant or something in the future. So a lot of my booking is just a lot closer in like everyone else in America. It just can't make really long distance plans. So I did choose May for the Galapagos on the advice of a naturalist friend who used to work in the national park, but that's as far out as I'm going right now. One of the things I appreciate actually about the pandemic is that it's made airlines and hotels a lot more flexible about having to cancel and reschedule things. Oh, absolutely. And we've written a lot about that. And we were very skeptical at the beginning when airlines said, yeah, we're not going to charge cancellation fees. I myself thought, okay, Yeah, maybe this year, but they've stuck to it. And that is great. Like you said, you can plan something and then back out of it without losing any money. I had to cancel three work trips this month, which is a lot. Nobody saw Omicron coming when I was planning these trips. And so when I had to back out of them and cancel everything, I was able to get away without any penalties. I did have to take credits on the flights, but I know that we'll use those in future. But um, yeah, it's made the airline industry in particular more flexible, which is great for consumers. Thank you for taking time out to talk today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh my gosh, Jared. Thank you so much for thinking of me and having me on.